I'm here with the chair of the Department of Psychology at Columbia University. He's also the ZIP Professor of Psychology in the Departments of Psychology and Psychiatry, Dr. Carl Hart. Dr. Hart, thank you so much for being with me. Thank you for having me. I'm no longer the chair. Uh, I'm oh, the past okay. chair. Yeah. Uh, All right. I'm on sabbatical. Yeah. Duly noted. Are you in New York right now? I am. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, the pandemic has us all here. Yeah. Or at home. Yeah. True. The pandemic seems to be uh, prime time for drug use. I know it was for me. <laughs> I I don't really use illicit drugs very much, and it's not necessarily because they're illicit. But I drink from time to time, and I noticed my drinking going way up during the pandemic with no problem whatsoever, and actually to great benefit. And now I'm seeing that due to many of the things you talk about in your book, people are having a really difficult time, not because they decide to use drugs, but because they can't get pure drugs anywhere. You've probably been keeping your eye on that trend. I have, you know, like uh, in New York, for example, it's almost impossible to get heroin without fentanyl. And I mean, with the pandemic and everything. Um, uh, so it highlights that uh, the problem isn't necessarily the drug that people are seeking. The problem is the contaminants and the market. Um, I hope smart people are paying attention to that. Uh, but you know, as well as I know, this is a time when people take advantage of the situation such that they exaggerate the harms associated with heroin, mm. uh, or they, they misattribute the harms associated with heroin to the harms associated with the capriciousness of the illicit market. Um, and that's, uh, that has been going on for years, which is the, the real shame. I should back up for a minute because I just realized in my introducing you, I didn't actually introduce that you're also an author. You wrote the books High Price and the most recent Drug Use for Grownups, which is, of course, what we're talking about. How did you come to, to study drugs and their effects and, um, and what inspired you to write the book in a nutshell? Well, as you know, I've been studying drugs for like 30 years or so, and I got into studying drugs because like many people, we wanted to solve what we thought was the scourge of drug addiction, that, that problem. Um, and somewhere over the course of this time, I realized that the problems wasn't drugs, the problem was our market. Uh, the, problem, uh, the problem was primarily how we were dealing with uh, these so-called illicit substances. And, and when did you begin this? I found this fascinating that it was as an adult that you really began using substances, especially the substances that in the U.S. are illicit. How did yeah. that come about? Yeah, so whenever I talk about my own substance use, I have to be careful because people have in the media and our documentary films and our feature films, they have really caricatured drug use such that you have irresponsible people doing this activity, behave, misbehaving and so forth. So I want to make sure it's clear people understand that, you know, when we're talking about my drug use, we're talking about just like we talk about your caffeine use, we're talking about your alcohol use, um, uh, that you are right in saying that I really didn't start using sub uh, uh these so-called illicit substances until i was like well into my 40s uh, although as a youth a young person i tried cocaine weed and those sorts of things but it wasn't until i was much older where i knew what i was doing i knew what drugs 
what effect I was seeking. I knew how to make sure I had the substance that I was seeking. Um, and it was always done and it's always done in a situation in which I have set aside time to engage in that activity. Just like I set aside time to go to a movie or to a comedy show, same sort of thing. So I want, uh, I have to explain this uh, because um, uh, most people come to this with their adolescent ideas about drugs. And um, sometimes uh, it's, tiring and, uh, and it eventually becomes maddening to like explain that um, this is uh, an activity engaged in by me who is a grown-up and uh, so yeah you're right uh, it wasn't until I was older uh, when I started doing this sort of thing. And what brought that on? I mean uh, here's what I mean by it I I'm in I'm in your camp here I believe there's a stigma associated with even if you're going to do illicit drugs, which many of my friends and colleagues do, that what you said about that in the book resonated with me deeply, but we'll never tell anybody, you know, because there's such a, a deep stigma attached to it. So I'm curious what, uh, when your initial illicit drug, let's say with heroin began and um, how you found it beneficial and why you decided to speak up about it. Uh, I don't Heroin must have been about what year are we maybe six years now, uh, six years ago. Uh, um, I had a friend, I think I described who also had never done it. And she, uh, we had some pretty pure stuff and, uh, we tried it and, um, uh, I knew that it was supposed to produce effects just like any other opioid oxycodone or some other sort of opioid we prescribe. And, Sure enough, it produced an effect like those other opioids. Um, um, and, I mean, we uh, snorted it. And so uh, many people think of heroin as you shoot and I never shot a drug. I have no plans on shooting a drug um, in part because um, um, the effects after snorting it are felt uh, rapidly enough for me. Um, uh, there are blood vessels leading from the nose to the brain and they get, it gets there pretty quickly, just like shooting it, not as quick, but I'm near as quick. Uh, and, um, uh, but for me, uh, shooting a drug, uh, uh, the effects uh, dissipate too rapidly, you know, rapid onset, rapid offset. Mm -hmm. um, I actually like oral drug administration better than any because the effects last longer. Um, uh, and so, um, I applied my pharmacological knowledge to this topic, and I, when I when I use and uh, you asked about the effects of heroin, how were they? How are they? Um, serene bliss, you know. Uh, uh, not, that's not to say like this nonsense that people like to say. Oh, heroin effects is like nothing else. I mean, it ain't sex. So don't. I mm. mean, people who say. People who say stupid shit like that, they should probably get another sex partner if they find <laughs> this more uh, appetizing than sex. Um, but it's uh, something that uh, I do uh, for uh, an altered experience. Just like I said, if I go see comedians, I love going to comedy, live comedy shows, same sort of thing. Uh, this is my time to do that. Um, and it helps me to... Uh, whether it's heroin, whether it's MDMA, whether it's cocaine, 
a lot of my substance use really helps me to recalibrate and to think about um, being more generous uh, and more open and more forgiving, uh, more magnanimous, uh, all of those things. Uh, and I like that. I like being a better person uh, because I know I have my limitations and um, my substance use uh, forces me to think about being a better person and forces me to think about effect or the impact of my actions on other people. Um, and so I like that. Yeah. I did heroin for a long time and it just happened to be that I got in an involvement with it that was destructive. And it, for a really long time, I believed basically any media about myself, my own experience. You know, they convinced me and gaslit me about my own experience that it was the heroin that took me over or something like that. And of course I've come to see and realize and try to teach that it's just a, an over my destructiveness was an over-reliance on heroin to produce more than it could for me. Rather, you know, I didn't have all the other dimensions of my life really sorted out. So I leaned on it too much. And I've talked on panels before. There's a doctor in our area uh, who I've spoken with him publicly. And I've said, not nearly as bravely as you, but something like, and if there were heroin that I knew I could get that was pure, I would definitely do it again. And he still to this day can't, just there's no understanding it. He just says, how could you say that? You know, after all that it's done to you, no matter how much I can explain uh, that it, it wasn't the drug that did it to me. We, Stanton and I, the other day, were talking about, we, he and I both love David Brooks and um, what's it, Kurt Anderson, the writers. And you know, we look to them because they are really good at scouring data and they pride themselves on it. We, it. we couldn't help but notice that when they talk about drugs, they buy into the same. Oh, and you mentioned Malcolm Gladwell does this too. You know, you think of him as this prolific, intelligent you can't help but slip into the uh, to the mythology, to the simple-minded sort of thinking and dichotomous thinking about drugs. People around me can't help it. So I'm, I would like, if you could, just in a potted way, could you talk about how you think we got us, ourselves into this mess and how we're so in, why we're so entangled in it? Yeah, so uh, like when you, we think about the writers, for example, who slip into this, uh, that's just intellectual laziness, you know? <laughs> and, it's okay. Uh, they're asked to be uh, experts on this wide range of subjects, and it's not fair, really. And so it's uh, uh, incumbent upon them to say, uh, Mia Copa, I got it wrong. I got to be to correct right. this because uh, uh, they can't be experts in everything. No one can be. Uh, that's, so that's fine. Now, how we got here is a whole different ball of wax. Many people think we got here. Uh, uh, because of some rational sort of reason. Um, it has a lot to do with good old American racism and hatred of others. Um, uh, so when we think about why these drugs are banned or why people have this sort of uh, negative uh, view of heroin, like the doctor who can't understand you might use heroin, uh, again, they've been misinformed, miseducated, and all those sorts of things, largely because uh, uh, our banning of these substances happened so long ago. Uh, people just kind of, you're born into a situation mm. where these drugs are illegal. So they're illegal, so therefore they're bad uh, in your mind. That's all you think. And then all of the, that sort of perspective uh, is reinforced by all of the information that's put out about these drugs. So it's just like, oh yeah, this person uh, is having a hard time. They use heroin. Yep, heroin caused them to have a bad time. 
so this kind of illogical thinking, it's like, just because two things go together don't mean that one thing caused the other or vice versa. Um, and that's where knowledge of the history is helpful. When we think about heroin and other opioids, uh, you look back at the history, the early 1900s, we began banning opioids because of our dislike of uh, Chinese people, folks who had come over to help build the railroads and uh, they brought with them smoking opium as a habit. And they also opened up various uh, opium, opium dens in which the white power structure was not happy about for several reasons. Uh, for one, uh, Chinese merchants were making money uh, they, and uh, mm. many of the white business uh, folks were not happy about that. And two, um, a lot of the young white kids or, or young white people were going into these dens and they didn't, uh, the, the power structure didn't want the intermingling of the races. And so they had to come up with ways to uh, uh, stop this from happening. And one way was to vilify uh, the practice of opium smoking or even opium taking. And so that's how we really, our negative view about opium and other uh, opioids occurred. Uh, cocaine, a similar sort of thing, what happened with the association of cocaine and black people had nothing to do with the pharmacology of these drugs, mm -hmm. uh, very little to do with the pharmacology of these drugs, but everything to do with the sociological aspect of the drugs, the racism of uh, American racism. So when you interrogate that history, you start to see how illogical our thinking has been around drugs. And then you start to think about if you are a compassionate person, then you start to think about who's paying the price for this. Uh, and you, then you think about, well, how can I contribute to making a change in this when I know that it's built, the foundations upon which it's built are flawed. And so that's how um, I kind of go back and think about how we got in this mess and what to do about it. I like you, you do sort of a mea culpa in your own book about, in a way, you're just humble about saying, of course, I've contributed to this too. Uh, you know, you believe things that you were spoon fed, but then, you know, you encourage readers to do what they can, wherever they are, to examine their own evidence and make the impact that they can. Absolutely. Uh, I'm still making mistakes uh, and I will continue to, as long as you put forth an effort, you, you might make a mistake. And it's like, it's okay. We all, we are human. Um, but uh, the real crime is like when you make a mistake and then you don't acknowledge it and mm -hmm. you continue to do that. And so uh, we've been making tremendous amounts of mistakes with drugs and I'm trying to ask people to uh, admit it and move past it so that we don't continue to force people to suffer. What do you do personally when you're confronted with, well, so like you were on Rogan the other day and I didn't catch the entire thing. Great, great job, by the way. But I do, I remember him talking about his friend said, uh, you know, I had a buddy who started biting someone's face or whatever, cause he was on PCP and you kind of laughed it off. And I, I, you said like, uh, well, you can remember, you got to get, but your friends are weird or something like that. You know, you just took, <laughs> took the focus away from the drug and just said, that's weird, you know. Yeah. But I, is that how you normally uh, get out of conversations like that? Uh, or do you do something more active to try to change people's minds? Or maybe it's context dependent. Yeah, I think it's context dependent. I don't really 
remember that conversation we talked you know like you said you didn't listen to the whole thing yet it's a marathon you have to take you have to take vacation off work to listen to the podcast you know it's a long (laughs) podcast i mean it's nice to be able to sit down and really unpack these issues but it's long and we talked about a lot of subjects and you know i really like joe just as a person we uh we vibe really well together uh and and so if he says some things that something that is seems uh outrageous about a drug you know it's love to, to say, yo, man, maybe you want to think about this because I don't think that's how it really goes down. Um, and I, I, I hope I'm as patient with other people, but I know I'm not sometimes because um, sometimes it's uh, like Joe wouldn't attack anybody. He doesn't do that. that so that's easy to love him in that respect. Uh, but there are people who say these things about drugs and the people who use them and they do it in a way that attacks them. And when that happens, uh, it's, it's harder for me to be patient. People have, as you mentioned in the book, tried to make a valiant effort to turn the tide on the mythology. And, you know, in some camps to do that, they wind up in their own little pockets of hypocrisy themselves. And you mentioned first uh, the harm reduction communities and uh, devoted some, I think a chapter to harm, capital H harm reduction should go. Can you say what you mean by that? Uh, Yeah, um, I was talking about really the term and how we think about harm reduction. Mm -hmm. Um, So when we think about harm reduction, we only think about drugs, right? And so if you pair harm reduction with drug use, repeatedly over and over and over it's easy for the a person to get the impression that the only thing that's associated with drugs are harms those are the only things associated with drugs and people who are taking drugs the primary thing that there you have to do is reduce the harms it's mm-hmm. like it's exactly the opposite you know the primary reason people take drugs is to enhance pleasure to for these pleasurable effects and so I was saying that um, harm reduction, the term is a stupid term, because what we're really talking about is just simple education, uh, simple interve- interventions, and simple sort of uh, common knowledge. That's all we really are talking about. Uh, and so why do we have to have this term that's unique to drugs? Uh, and then that term is a negative term harm reduction. It's like, no, it's not. That term is not complex enough. It's not nuanced enough uh, to handle the the complexities, uh, the sort of uh, the complexities of this grown-up concept, drug use. Um, And instead, it keeps it in this caricatured, childish sort of uh, view. And so um, in that chapter, I'm asking people to reconsider that term. So it's a reinforced sort of negative outlook on drugs again. Absolutely. You just pair it, drugs would harm, drugs harm, drugs harm. That constant pairing about our language, it shapes our behavior, it shapes our, it shapes our thinking, it shapes all of this. And so I'm, I'm trying to ask people to be cognizant of that. I remember when I was kicking my worst habits, whether it was drugs or otherwise, I had trouble in school just to... Uh, all sorts of ways I was either treated like an infant or treated like I was horrible you know and I think that 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 the harm reduction communities despite best efforts and amazing intentions and amazing people 
does that. You know, it makes people feel infantilized or like demons. Absolutely. Like, I mean, I'm glad you said like uh, they typically these are good people who want to help and that's why they're doing this work. Um, but we know the road to hell was paved with good intentions. Um, and this is the problem with liberals, for example. It's like uh, they want to help, but help on their terms. Mm. Uh, and so it's like, they know more about your experience than you do. Yeah, and yeah. so that's the problem. Um, um, that's why, uh, uh, you know, that's what my sort of bone of contention is with liberals. Um, it's like uh, uh, allow people to let you know about their experience. You don't know more about their mm. experience than they do. You talked about psychedelics too and your sort of different ways of thinking about psychedelics through time. Um, I remember you saying before the book was out, you talked about people, some people in some psychedelic communities. I don't know if you psychonauts, you call them that they they're drug exceptionalists. Like, you know, if you do psychedelics, you might have an experience that keeps you from doing these other horrible drugs yeah. uh, and took issue with that. But, and if, I'll let you tell it, but you kind of have come to see that, that put, you know, a blemish in your mind about psychedelics and, and you've turned the corner on, on that. Can you just, Talk about that whole experience. Yeah, you know, um, uh, as you nicely laid out, uh, uh, there are people who are enthusiastic about their psychedelic drugs. Uh, and at the same time, they besmirch um, the other drugs and the people who use them and not understanding that, you know, they're all, we're all doing the same thing, trying to alter our consciousness for whatever reasons. And so uh, it had that sort of, perspective that view kind of soured me on this class of drugs and that was wrong um, because you know the people are flawed we all are uh, and that doesn't mean that this class of drugs is flawed or anything um, and and it was nice to work through it writing the book um, and also uh, I learned a lot more about people like Jerry uh, Garcia uh, the Grateful Dead uh, uh, front man for the most part um, and uh, had a better relationship, got a better relationship with people like Rick Doblin from MAPS and those folks. Um, uh, so uh, I learned some things too. Uh, hopefully I learned how to be a, uh, an even better person, hopefully, um, uh, and be more forgiving in that community because there still remains those people who think of psychedelics as being special. Mm. Uh, they're not, they're not, they're just, they're just compounds just like anything else but we had a similar sort of thing with marijuana a same sort of thing um mm -hmm. uh, and in the book i'm trying to show uh let people know that all of us we're all in this together the psychedelic chapter is called psychedelics we are one and we are and that, that's that's the that's the message that i'm trying to communicate in that chapter right that, that's a good point we went through it with cannabis still are i guess you have groups of people saying, you know, cannabis will help you kick other horrible drugs. But you're so you're against sort of pigeonholing the drug experiences into some special category that's different than that doesn't play by the rules of other human life experiences. That's exactly right. I mean, that sort of thinking is how we got to the war on drugs, uh, treating drugs as they are. Uh, 
treating drug use as if it's a unique human behavior. Mm. Uh, and then within the drug using community, we treat uh, specific drugs as if they are some unique experience, you know, it's like, no, they all conform to the same principles of human behavior. I mean, and so, um, yeah, I hope that message came through clear. I think so. I, I maybe was reading it with a certain kind of mindset. So I guess who knows, but, and you'll see. You did devote a chapter, I think it's chapter four, to what addiction is and isn't. I haven't heard you talk so much about addiction itself, really, more about what, you know, what drugs do and don't do. Why was it important for you to include a chapter about uh, addiction and that it's not a brain disease? Uh, because uh, it's important to talk about addiction in part because I really didn't want to, but you have to say, like... Uh, this is where the conversation usually starts. Mm. And here's why that's wrong. Because most people's experience do not comport with addiction. In fact, they're something else. So you have to explain, have to show people uh, how that happens and what that is about. You have to give analogies like uh, cars. Imagine if you were interested in cars and the only information you could find is car crashes. Uh, that would be inappropriate. Well, that's what we're doing with drugs. So I had to explain that to people in a way. And then I have to do, you have to always deal today with the brain babble bullshit. You know, everybody thinks that, oh, you put a neural imaging picture up, that means you have some real data. And so I tried to walk the reader through uh, these brain imaging sort of findings and studies so they knew, so the reader knows what question to ask. Uh, that's the most important thing. If the reader knows what questions to ask of the researchers, then that's an advance for us as a society because this, the researcher is less likely to pull a wool over the society's eyes. Um, and that, as you know, uh, continues to be done so often so much because, in large part, because NIDA's director, Nora Volkov, is a neural imager and she has all this influence. And so... Um, that's where the field has gone. That's where the public goes as a result. And I wanted to let them know that they were all being gaslit. When it comes to organizations like NIDA, is there someone pulling the strings or is it just a whole system that can't correct itself? Or I don't know, what is there foul play, I guess is my question. Or is it just ignorance? Is it foul play? Wow, when that's it, a good question. Yeah, you know what I'm saying when it comes to uh, neuroimaging. Uh, no, I, I get it. Um, uh, it's hard to say. No, I don't think people are intentionally like misleading people. I don't think that's happening. Uh, but I do think people are being intellectually lazy because it's beneficial. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. um um, you know, we know that uh, you have to get your grants and getting your grants becomes more important than the societal good or the harm that's done to society. That's the real, I think that's the sort of wicked thing that happens. There's, uh, you know, on a personal level, I, I think anyone could imagine you think or believe or find out something that seems to go against the grain. You, you're kind of looking around you to figure out why, either why you're wrong or why everybody else is wrong, but it doesn't feel comfortable as you, of course, know now to be the one out front saying, you, it, you know, you guys are all have it wrong. You got you have to listen to what I 
what I've just found out or what I believe. Why, what makes you, how did you decide that you would do that? I mean, is it just a devotion to honesty above all else? I guess what I'm saying is so, so few people do what you're doing, even though they could. It's almost easy to understand why people don't do what you're doing. It's harder maybe to understand why you are. Well, uh, like you, you said earlier, you, it's like it's a context dependent kind of thing. And it's context dependent. You know, like re remember that in terms of science and drug abuse science, most of the researchers are white. Uh, I'm black, uh, mm -hmm. meaning that I have family members, uh, children, relatives who are uh, negatively impacted by what we're currently doing in terms of the war on drugs. So I have to go home and I have to see this sort of stuff, the, the waste, uh, the carnage that has occurred as a result of our war on drugs. And, and I have to think about what role do I play as a science? What role does my science play in perpetuating that carnage, that mm. damage, that harm? And so I'm forced to look at it, whereas other people aren't forced to look at it. And so when you're really forced to look at it up close and personal, um, it increases your motivation to do things differently. I remember reading David Chef's Beautiful Boy and thinking, yep. that's nice. You know, it's a good story. But when we're talking about it was just another story, another sort of uh, exaggerated. I mean, I'm sure that the things that happened in his life happened, but most of the people we're dealing with aren't beautiful boys, you know, or people in that situation with a lot of wealth, a lot of ways to fall down and pick themselves back up. A lot of people that we're talking about with who are most devastated by, I guess, the war on drugs, you might say, uh, are people that maybe we, someone who would write that book doesn't have to, as you mentioned be with surround themselves with contextual you know communities that they're not contextualized in I've, i'm yeah. learning that slowly yeah. also chef you know i don't know what he knows about methamphetamine but some of the characterization characterization was just wrong and yeah. you know um that sort of stuff does more harm um and it, and i really have little patience for that kind of writing uh because they don't bother to even look at the scientific literature or any literature that to support what they say uh, besides uh, some popular notion. And so, um, yeah, I have nothing but contempt for that sort of stuff. Yeah. I remember you talking about Dr. Drew. And that, that's a different story because he's sort of thriving on people's suffering rather than uh, yep. over-reporting yep. on their own suffering. But that's, yep. I feel like that that's a... That's on that spectrum. Absolutely, uh, there are there are a lot of people out here benefiting on on uh, they, uh, their benefit. It's predicated upon people's suffering. Uh, Dr. Drew is just one of many. Uh, yeah, one of our attorneys here. We were pushing for safe consumption sites in Burlington, Vermont, and the U.S. attorney from Vermont wouldn't have it. Um, you know, she said, I'll, I'll arrest if, if whatever happens, I'll arrest everybody that goes into that place and leaves the place. And she and this person who went, who's went to jail, she arrested and went to jail. He came out of it, wrote the story, wrote the story about how drugs took him over. And I see it in people like this where they say, This gives them an identity. And yep. you can't, like you say, you can't go wrong telling that story when you know it's a risk to tell the truth. 
And it's an you, investment. Yes. Right. You, you hit it on the head when you say it gives them an identity. I mean, that's why, like, um, the things that I'm saying about opioids is met with such resistance. There are so many people who have an identity, their di identity bound up in this myth that we're telling about opioids from parents to ex-users to you name it. They all have their identity bound up. Even cops now have their identity bound up with being, I'm the cop who's good on opioids. I mean, they're all now invested in this sort of thing. Uh, and so they, they are the ones who uh, I meet the most resistance from when, when I talk about this sort of thing. It's like, um, I was nobody, and then I found this opioid story. I'm someone, and mm. you want you want to take that away from me. It's like I don't. I mean, I I think everybody should have purpose in their life, so I want to make sure they have purpose. But not if your purpose is harming other people and it's wrong, you know. You know, and so um, mm -hmm. um, and that's the case with the opioids. It's harming that that sort of story that you're telling is harming other people and it's wrong. Mm. What are your favorite, favorite is not the right way to say it. What are the most profoundly incorrect drug myths that you deal with regularly? If you could even pin it down to a few. Yeah, um, we're having a crisis of opioids, number one today. Mm -hmm. um, one hit or a few hits of heroin, you're addicted. You cannot use opioids in, in a controlled manner. Uh, uh, Drug addiction or drug use causes a brain disease. That's another big one. Um, those are the, the really the really big ones. When I wrote uh, my book that I my most recent book, I couldn't get any press around here. <laughs> you know, it's not like they didn't get the the galley or something like that. Uh, so I'm invested now, though. I'm invested in the, in truth telling and good journalism. It's not extremely lucrative at this at this point because as it could be otherwise so what are your suggestions for people who you know given that most of the people who read your book even if it jibes with them aren't going to go out and make a heroic effort to change the narrative what would you hope that people would do you know if if even the most small step they could take to changing narratives get out of the closet just get out of the closet and be responsible. Um, and just people seeing that, hey, you use drugs and that conflicts, the people around you seeing that you use drugs and that conflicts with their sort of view of what a drug user looks like, that would be so helpful. Hmm. Have you caught any flack for just being honest? Um, I, I guess I catch flack all the time, uh, but I don't really, I don't really know uh, what you mean preci precisely. You know, like most people are cowards. And so they don't tell you things to your face. They do stuff behind your back. And, um, and so I have to read about it later or, or see it later, you know, like some snarky review or something like that. I don't, I don't, I, I, uh, the thing that I worry about more than anything is that I want to make sure I'm right and that I'm not misleading misleading people. So I worry about that more than anything else. Other than that, uh, you know, my family, of course, uh, mm -hmm. I worry about what they think, uh, my immediate family, my children, my wife. Uh, and 
Did I worry about not misleading people? Beyond that, I, I could give it. I don't really care. Uh, Good point. So you're not even really looking for it. That makes sense too, that in, especially in academia, if someone has a problem, it wouldn't be directly told to you. No, no, <laughs> it's, uh, it's a cowardly activity. Mm. What, what do you think about when it comes to your family, especially your kids who I think are adults um, and who in all likelihood, given statistical relevance, will decide to use drugs. Yeah. I don't think you would, you would be against it for the reasons that they're drugs, but I can imagine you wanting to make sure that they're safe and using drugs considering who knows what, where there's flies coming from. What, yeah. what kind of conversations do you have with them about that? Okay, so to be clear with my kids, uh, uh, I have three boys and a girl, so, uh, and they're all 20 and older. Okay, so, okay, the, the, the older than uh, I thought. Yeah, so um, we're past the experimental stage. I got you. <laughs> um, and so, um, but still, uh, the thing that I worry about with my kids is not so much drug effects because I talk to them about drug effects. They grew up learning about drug effects. They know how to know which effects are most likely with which drugs. They know that. The thing that I worry about most is the cops police. Um, mm -hmm. You know, drug effects are predictable and we work on those things and we can minimize the harms that are related to that and enhance the beneficial effect. Uh, drug effects predictable, police interactions are not. And too often, like the black youngster ends up dead uh, interacting with the police. And so that's my biggest concern, the police. Drugs are, they pale in my comparison and my concern for the police. Um, uh, uh, yeah, this is, drugs is really simple for me. That's interesting and sad that the maybe the biggest harm reduction idea that you're trying to make sure that your own kids, your own family, people that you care about understand is the harms associated with involving themselves with the police who are supposed to protect people from harms. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and, you know, I said this statement maybe what year? Wow, it's almost 10 years. Maybe 10 years ago, I said this, uh, I was given a talk uh, at Yale and um, the, the group there, somebody balked at that statement, you know, an audience of white researchers and not knowing how to perspective take. And now we're, you know, we've had the summer of 2020. People kind of understand it now. In fact, mm -hmm. I, got, I got disinvited from a talk at the University of Central Florida for making that remark and writing an op-ed in, in the Washington Post. And they disinvited me from speaking because of that remark. You know, and, you, and so you used to be like, talk about uh, tone deafness of uh, um, some in white America. That's the most insulting thing. It's like, you okay. got to tell me about my experience as a black parent now. But again, that's kind of like liberalism too. Uh, yeah. Liberals kind of think that too. And so, yeah. Yeah, there's no, there's no uh, party that's winning the conversation on you know, responsible drug taking right now. That's absolutely not, you know, absolutely not. Um, that, uh, I mean, both parties have agreed to kind of take drugs as a, off of the table. It's like, 
we both will be have the same position on that. And so that's not an issue that's up for grabs here. My perspective is that reviews that I've seen of your recent book, Drug Use for Grownups, have been sympathetic, but can't all the way understand what you're doing. Um, yeah, including, think, the, including the Times piece. I'm curious to know if you think anyone got it right. Uh, the NPR piece. Oh, I didn't. So maybe I didn't see in the NPR or hear the NPR piece. So oh, the NPR I should, I'm piece, talking out of school. Yeah, the NPR piece was outstanding. And oh, okay. It, it hit it on the mark. It got it. Got it. It hit it. It hit the mark perfectly. The Times piece was petty. Um, the person who wrote the Times piece, uh, I had some interactions with her. Um, and uh, she was, uh, she had written a book, I think, on amphetamines and vilifying amphetamines for her problems or something like that. And so um, it's okay. I mean, that's how the goal is to get in the Times and then let the reader read the book. That's and true. Make yeah. Their own decision. Yeah. And, um, and so the interesting point is that if a reviewer quibbled, uh, had any quibbles, it was never fact-based or it mm. never, the review would never challenge what the evidence is. It's never based on the evidence. It's always based on this feeling that I have about uh, my view about heroin. It conflicts with my view about heroin. You know, this isn't about your view about heroin. It's about the evidence. And so there was, there was never any sort of a quibble with the evidence. It's only this uncomfortable feeling that the reviewer might have had. And as long as my evidence is tight and we're dealing with the evidence, I'm good. So when I started writing and working with Peel, the first thing he said was, first of all, I'm not a great role model. You know, you've got some people skills, so you should use those. Uh, and second, he said, don't expect to make new friends, you know, doing this shit. And do you, <laughs> do you feel that way? Like, do you, do you, other people who you think get it and you can count on and rely on uh, who are in this with you? Or do you feel kind of, I mean, are you isolated and a lone person talking in this way? Uh, it's low, it's pretty lonely. But one of the things that's really nice is that younger people are, uh, are open to it and these ideas will be here for them. When, you know, when they, they will be born into these ideas and, and they'll use these ideas to, I mean, uh, to shape their society as they see fit uh, when I'm no longer here. That's cool. Um, in the meantime, I have my psychoactive substances. I have my significant other. I have my, you know, friends that um, are not in this field and we do our thing. And so um, that's cool. Um, that That's that. Uh, uh, that's a great life, actually. And this is a selfish question, just because I'm curious. Did people like Stanton, I can't think of who might have else might have come before, have an effect on the work you do? Or did you reach? I see in my mind, because I, I found out about you and him and other, you know, other researchers at the same time, I think of you in the same category. I'm curious yes, whether is. you put yourself in that category or if this is like independently reached conclusions. Uh, you know, Stanton has been out here. I remember in graduate school, um, I was teaching a course, uh, drugs and behavior. And whenever I wanted to like present a contrarian perspective, I go read Stanton 
<laughs> and he was the only one that I recall in the 90s uh, asking us to question this notion that heroin was so dangerous. Uh, I don't recall anyone else um, having that position. Doesn't mean that they weren't out there. I just don't recall it. Mm. And so that was certainly influential to me, uh, that sort of thinking. Um, the field that I was in was like animal neuroscience and everybody thought the same. Dopamine, 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 dopamine. Mm. And there was no sort of thinking outside of the box. Everybody wanted to be uh, these few guys who was who were doing the animal studies and it was none of those guys actually had any drug experiences drug using experiences themselves uh, they wouldn't know a drug user if they were sleeping with one you know um, and so I did it took me years to really know that but I know now based on the nonsense that they were writing and that they're currently writing uh, so uh, Stanton was certainly helpful, um, but those guys were helpful in helping me understand the neurobiology. And so I can take apart that nonsense at that level. Um, uh, but when it comes to like um, having people get out of the closet and also having really having the definitive understanding of drug use, that happened as a result of traveling around the world and seeing uh, what other people were doing and also being free to use in places that were decriminalized and that sort of stuff. Um, that has had like a huge impact on how I think. Well, thank you. I, it, I look up to the work you do and I, I know, and I know that people reading are going to realize how difficult it is to speak honestly, uh, how often maybe, maybe if anything else, if nothing else that people think, wow, it's so frequently in my day that I sort of tell these lies to protect myself or don't tell the truth to protect myself. And you put it very clearly that that affects others more than we know. And so thank you. Thanks for your work and thanks for the book and good best of luck on it. Zach, thank you, man. If, and you know, you've got my info. So if I can be of any help, please reach out because I really dig what you're doing. I really dig your enthusiasm. And also I really dig that you're working with Stanton, you continue to work with Stanton. You know, uh, he's been alone for many years and that shapes how we are. Uh, and so um, sometimes negatively, uh, I know the feeling. And so thank you for working with him because he, 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 uh, he's important here.